Hey there, it's Jeff MacArthur. Here's what's on the podcast today. The SIU with a decision in relation to the Regis Korchinski paquette case. The government announcing $2 billion in funding for back to school. And is expanding your social bubble or circle a good idea? All of that coming up, so let's get to it. Ontario's SIU Special Investigations Unit clearing all of the police officers of wrongdoing in the death of 29-year-old Regis Korchinski paquette the Toronto woman, of course, fell to her death, if you recall, from her 24th floor apartment balcony back on May 27th, the end of May, after police were called to her home. And if you recall at the time, uh, her mother then posted a video online stating that she believed police officers actually had pushed Regis. And again, the SIU clearing officers of wrongdoing in a report just out in the last hour. Global's Camille Carmali has been following the story for us and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Camille, thanks for the time. Uh, this report just coming out in the last hour. Have you had a chance to look it over? What does it say? Why have they cleared officers of wrongdoing here? Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot to note in terms of what transpired after that initial video from the family that, uh, you know, alleging that uh, officers pushed her off the balcony. But uh, what we do know is that uh, what um, has transpired in the SIU investigation is that um, the police officers involved chose not to speak. The family uh, in response chose not to speak um, they, because uh, in large part, uh, for the most part, they uh, claimed through their lawyer that they had not received uh, some of the information that they were uh, fighting for, uh, which includes uh, video footage from the hallway, which also includes the uh, police officers' names and badge numbers as well who were involved. So, uh, you know, in the initial reaction from Regis Korczynski Paquette's family is also that the SIU did not have a chance to thoroughly conduct this investigation and it was done behind closed doors. We'll also hear more from uh, the lawyers as well as the families uh, uh, later today at 4 p.m. Uh, we've just heard that they're holding a press conference outside where this incident took place at 100 High Park. Uh, but um, the SIU did say that uh, six uh, police officers were around when uh, this incident took place, including the subject officer. Uh, and uh, those officers, in, in large part, did talk to police, but uh, there was also 15 civilian witnesses who were interviewed, including, um, you know, the mother and the brother who were there at the time, and uh, including the father who was also on the phone uh, with uh, with Korchinski-Packet before she fell. So um, they, they have had somewhat of a clear answer, but at the same time, um, a lot of that information has not been released to the other party, including uh, the family wanting to know more about what took place in that interview. And so they're, they're really um, upset and think that there was not proper due diligence done in this investigation. Yeah, Camille, do we know if the family was given a, a heads up, was told about this report before it came out, or did they find out uh, when the rest of us did? Were they given the courtesy of a phone call? Uh, from what we know, and uh, having to speak, having spoken with the family lawyer earlier today, I mean, uh, they had an idea that it might be coming down sometime in the near future, but really in terms of a specific date and time, they weren't given that. So, um, you know, I just finished an interview with a family friend and uh, they have just been taken aback by this news that came down today. They were just shocked and, and uh, I'm literally sitting outside of their home right now having just finished an interview with them. And uh, yeah, they, they are really shaken up. They were in tears just with that, um, with that news coming down because really 
Um, they were looking for answers. And can you imagine months and months of just this uh, agonizing saga for them, trying to figure out what transpired before um, Regis's death, and now finding out that uh, that they won't be able to hold anyone accountable so far um, in, in their view or in their eyes. We know, of course, uh, her death prompted thousands to hit the streets to protest uh, police uh, brutality uh, back in uh, late May. Have we heard uh, from uh, police or the family when it comes to perhaps another demonstration or uh, police, the city bracing for that possibility uh, later today, tonight? Uh, so far, the news is still fairly fresh for family members as well as, uh, you know, people who knew Regist. Uh, like I said, I kind of just approached the family friends' homes uh, right now, uh, having spoken to them just moments ago and lining up this interview that I just conducted. And uh, really, they, they were just in shock. I, I don't think it's had a chance if, uh, for a lot of people who loved Regis to digest that information just yet. But I'm sure as the hours unfold later today, before we go to air by 5.30 or 6 o'clock, especially with that 4 p.m. press conference that's happening with the family members outside of the building, I'm sure we'll get some answers as to what, uh, if any, marches or rallies might take place as a result. But you can imagine and, and count on that there is a lot of anger out there right now, including on Twitter. I mean, we tweeted this out and just the response by Toronto's black community and, and other members who who thought there was, you know, concluded on their own uh, that there was some wrongdoing um, are just absolutely appalled by uh, appalled by this decision. All right. Man, we'll look forward to your report tonight at 530. Appreciate the update today here with us this afternoon. Thanks for your time, Jeff. You bet. Global's Camille Carmali. Also want to play for you the SIU director. This is a Joseph Martino. He's uh, made a statement to, regarding this uh, SIU report released, uh, again, just within the uh, last hour that is, a that is clearing all police officers of any wrongdoing in the death of 29-year-old Regis Korczynski-Paquette. Here is the director of the SIU, Joseph Martino. First and foremost, it must be acknowledged that Ms. Korczynski-Paquette's death and others in recent months has raised important issues of social consequence. On the heels of the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis and the protest movement it has spawned across the United States, Canada, and elsewhere, there is increased scrutiny of our society's policing of members of the Indigenous and Black communities. Ms. Kwiatkowski Paquette was a member of both communities. I accept that systemic racism exists and continues to challenge the relationship between racialized communities and the institutions of our justice system, just as it does in other sectors of society. Our leaders have acknowledged it, as have our laws. As is set out in the preamble of Ontario's Anti-Racism Act, quote, systemic racism is a persistent reality in Ontario, preventing many from fully participating in society and denying them equal rights, freedoms, respect, and dignity. However, the task before me was a narrow one, namely to determine whether there were reasonable grounds on the evidence collected by the SIU to believe that any one or more of the officers who responded to Ms. Kwiatkowski-Paquette's apartment committed a criminal offense in connection with her death. It was not to conduct a broad inquiry into systemic discrimination on the part of the police service. There are other forms with the institutional mandates and expertise to conduct those inquiries. Having said that, the SIU cannot and must not turn a blind eye to issues of race to the extent they are manifest in a specific case under investigation. With respect to the circumstances culminating in Ms. Kwiatkowski-Paquette's death 
the investigation turned up no indications of overt racism being brought to bear by any of the involved officers. That is not to suggest that questions of race were entirely absent in the encounter. There is evidence for Ms. Korczynski Paquette's family that Ms. Korczynski Paquette attempted to court favor with the police at one point by informing them that her father was coming and that he was white. The officers, it must be noted, did not hear any such utterance, nor were they captured by the wireless microphones worn by two involved officers. Needless to say, if true, the utterance is testament to the importance of efforts to build and nurture trust in the relationship between the police and members of the black and indigenous communities. There were allegations in the wake of Ms. Korczynski Paquette's death that she was pushed off the balcony by the police. The evidence establishes that this did not occur. Instead, the evidence indicates that no one other than Ms. Korczynski Paquette was on the balcony when she scaled over the railing and attempted, attempted to sidestep along the outer ledge over to her neighbor's balcony, lost her balance, and fell. That was the evidence of the subject officer and witness officer number three, who were present in the apartment at the time, confirmed by the account of civilian witness number six, a female paramedic who was in the apartment having been brought in to attempt to calm Ms. Korczynski Paquette. It was also the evidence of civilian witness number four, an independent civilian witness who was walking on High Park Avenue near the apartment building in question, looked up and saw Ms. Korczynski Paquette on the outer side of the balcony railing, moving quickly along the railing to her right before she fell. All right, there's the director of the SIU, Joseph Martino, earlier saying that the investigation, the SIU's uh, mandate was to see whether or not there was criminal intent regarding Regis Korczynski Paquette's death, but this was not, in his words, an investigation of systemic racism, albeit that is of importance too to the police officer or the, to the police department and society at large. So there's a Joseph Martino in the SIU side of this, as we have breaking news this afternoon, that uh, police officers cleared of any and all wrongdoing in the death of Regis Korczynski Paquette, who of course fell to her death from her 24th floor apartment balcony back in late May of this year. Back to school plants, provincial government with an update just last, this past hour. Earlier this morning, the federal government announcing some $2 billion for back to school safety. Joining us now to help us make sense of it all, Annie Kidder, CEO of People for Education. She joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Annie, good afternoon. Nice to have you back on. Good afternoon. Two kinds of hurricanes. One a real one. Yeah, I guess so. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, let's deal with the education one now. And I want to start with the announcement from the provincial government just moments ago, Annie, that there will be no mandatory tests for kids that uh, show symptoms and are removed from the classroom? Should that be concerning for parents? <sighs> it's so hard because it's sort of asking of parents to be experts on this and, and or me to be an expert on this. I, I think that what they're, they're trying to do is not add, you know, layers and layers and layers of um, uh, kind of not red tape is the wrong word to use, but of sort of systems on top of systems. So they've made clear that if people, if somebody tests positive, then everybody goes home. Um, and it's hard with the testing because even if it's mandatory, it's not necessarily going to solve all the problems. So I'm sure that what they looked at is, you know, does every time a kid gets a cold, do they have to go get a COVID test? And that's not really a workable solution either. So it doesn't seem 
that bad. Uh, what what was announced, it seems understandable. It's still hard to sort of comprehend what will happen. Um, the part of the announcement was if um, a, a kid tests positive and they have a sibling in another class, then that class may isolate too. So there's a lot of different components of this plan. All right. One of those components is another $70 million for teachers. Is that enough to get us to where we need to be in your estimation when it comes to uh, numbers and class size? I'm not sure. That part that that part is an ongoing problem. So they, you know, the prime minister announced mon- uh, funding this morning. Ontario gets about 380 million, I think, as their first uh, the first part of this funding. They get the second half uh, later in the year. The province has said this is, you know, divided up what they're going to spend it on. Quite a lot of it on dealing with ventilation and cleaning and sort of operational HVAC issues. Um, Seventy million for what they describe as educators on a temporary basis. I think. Not sure whether that includes support staff, but given what boards have said, um, you know, I think the, the Halton board the other day said we need 1,200 teachers. Toronto has named a, I can't remember how many hundred teachers they need in order to get class sizes down small enough in elementary school to kind of address parents' concerns about, you know, are they going to be able to be physically distanced enough? I'm not sure uh, that it is uh, enough money to to answer that. $25 million also set aside today, part of the announcement to ensure distancing on school buses, which is something that was really at the forefront today. Yesterday, school bus drivers really raising a red flag there. Well, I think that, and I think that that's, you know, part of the thing that's been hard is there have been so many different red flags raised, and, and it is, it's hard to, continue to understand from a kind of big picture perspective, okay, have we looked at at this from every possible angle? And not to, you know, flog a dead horse, unfortunate expression. Um, We have been saying since early spring that there should be a task force that involves everybody and that it's not too late to have that so that if we had everybody at the table together. So teachers, principals, support staff, students, organizations, uh, directors of education, the school people who run school buses, early childhood education, uh, people from health and municipalities. I think that we wouldn't necessarily be quite in this in the position we're in where we're still seem to be putting out fires and kind of cobbling together solutions. So I yeah, you talk about timing, sorry to interrupt, but you talk about timing yeah. and just wondering the announcement from the feds today, there's two billion. I'm sure the provinces are very thankful for the money, but it's August 26th. I mean, is that announcement, do you think, a little late? And will the effects of the funding be there for the start of school? Well, it, it definitely is late. And I think they definitely, when you listen to the prime minister this morning, they couldn't ignore anymore the, the voices that were calling out to them to do something. Um, it, it, it is it's all. I think one of the worries is that right now it feels like we're still in kind of emergency planning mode, where we've actually been in this situation since the beginning of or the middle of March. So it is late. Uh, it um, it's probably not enough. Also, but it doesn't mean that. I think there's still an opportunity to to work with this. We still think we should be slowing down the school reentry so that everybody has time to figure out, you know, how things work, how you, you know, meet the health and safety protocols, how we're dealing with kids 
levels of kind of emotional stress, their mental health, where they are educationally. All of these things have to be done fairly slowly and carefully. And there's going to be no, you know, back to business as usual, for sure, for quite a while. Yeah. Part of the announcement by the prime minister earlier today, Annie, was that the provinces will be given sole jurisdiction over where to spend the money, that part of the $2 billion that they're going to get. What's your best advice for Ontario? Where do you think we'll get the most bang for our buck? Where should we spend that money? I think we should be spending it on staff. I think that the more people, the more adults we had in schools or other places, if there's not enough space in schools, uh, in community centers, in libraries, in convention centers that nobody's using right now, uh, the more chance we would have to make sure that kids are all getting the support they need and that they can be, you know, adequately physically distanced. I think that... Um, there, you know, we are spending money in a lot of areas, but really, what we need is is those adults to make sure that all kids um, are 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 getting, a, you know, fairly a fairly equitable chance. Right now, we've got a lot of parents saying they're they're opting out or they're starting learning pods, whatever. But those are only the parents who can can afford it, and we're we're still relying on families to do a lot of the support. But most kids in Ontario, their high school kids, are going to be learning online uh, for at least half of the time. Who's there to support them? How are we going to make sure that we're not kids aren't kind of falling through the cracks? So to me, spend the money on on, on bodies, on grown-ups, on um, on support staff, so that we're so that we're all able to maybe not thrive in the pandemic, but certainly more than survive. All right, Annie Kinner, CEO of People for Education. Annie, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for breaking okay. this down. Nice to talk to you. Okay, bye bye. Well, social circles have become a growing concern as the province tries to keep the COVID numbers down. Now, of course, for the last few months, the magic number has been 10, right? 10 in your circle or in your bubble. But earlier this week, Ontario's chief medical officer said that the health table is now considering larger circles. But should they? Let's welcome in Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist who joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Everyone is concerned, of course, about the uh, COVID numbers and a spike and a perhaps second wave on the way. Is it time, do you think, to expand the bubble, or would that be ill-advised right now? In a sense, they're asking the wrong question. The bubble has already been blurred by changing rules and regulations by kids who are going to be going back to school and mixing with other kids, um, by an increase in gatherings indoors that you know can be 50 or more. Um, it's so hard for people to, I think, make sense of what they need to do to make safe that to say, well, maybe the bubble should be a little bit bigger. I think even, even floating that question adds to the confusion. I think it would be better to revisit the concept of bubbling and renew the public education message that says, this is why bubbles are important. This is what you need to keep in mind. This is why you should try and minimize the size. So pointing to a goal of bigger bubbles is, is not the right message in a really confusing field of messages. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because that was my next question. I've seen reaction online, and basically it's one of two things. That uh, newsflash, we've already gone by that. Most people's bubbles are, whether it was advised by the health table or not, bigger than 10. And as you just mentioned, back to school, that uh, most kids' bubbles are about to expand to 100 or more. 
Yes. And, and so it's really, I think, what we should be going to now with the public is the concept of the bubble, making sure people really understand so they don't get cynical, that the concept of the bubble is to be mindful about how many close interactions you have with people, to be, to be mindful about it, to think, is this someone who I'm hugging or not? And, and to be explicit about that and, and why. And some people in your social circles may be riskier than others. They may be riskier because of their lifestyle. They may be riskier because of their attitudes. So I really want people to stay mindful about how small can they keep their bubble while still maintaining their mental health and trying to do what they can as we all try to to, to cope in this difficult time, um, but to think about minimizing unnecessary close contact. And that, that's the concept of the bubble. Okay, so it's not necessarily a magic number. It's not 10, not 20, not 30. Folks should not be concentrating on a number, but rather, doctor, they should just be very, as you say, mindful and just uh, thinking about uh, their interactions and how they're interacting with people, making sure that they're masked, they're wearing face masks, uh, keeping up with physical distancing, that sort of thing, because interaction is inevitable. I think that that nails it. There is no magic number. There's no evidence base for that. Risk goes up exponentially with a bigger bubble. So a bubble of 12 is way more than 20% riskier than a bubble of 10. And and that's because it's a geometric thing, because it's it's you're bubbling with everyone they've ever bubbled with and so on and so forth. So it's smaller is better. And yes, mask wearing and physical distancing, those are the really important things that we need to keep doing. And I know it's exhausting and I know it's a nuisance and no one likes it, but it's working and we need to keep doing it are there other areas of concern as well never mind the size of the bubble but we've seen a lot of travel this summer a lot of people doing staycations uh, day trips traveling uh, within the province or within canada malls of course stage three have a reopened a lot of stores and shops are those as big a concern as the size of someone's bubble some travel, I think, is extremely risky. I don't think people should be getting on airplanes, and there's a few reasons for that. Airplanes recirculate their air. They don't need to. They choose to do it because they save money. They save gas. So there's, there's certain kinds of travel, like being in airplanes or being in big hotels, that uh, people sh- just shouldn't do. For mental health, getting outside, um, you know, renting a cottage or someplace where you control the premises, that's great. That's fantastic. So it's, there, there's a whole wide range of risk involved in these different kinds of behaviors, traveling and socializing with others. The most important thing to do is to be mindful about how can I minimize risky contact. And the one thing that I really want us to undo is restaurants and bars. The one thing we should not be doing is allowing anybody to congregate in a group indoors without masks. And bars and restaurants are right in the middle of that. Okay, we've talked about that uh, the last uh, few weeks, particularly when we saw the spikes in the BC, and a lot of that was with the younger demographic and bars and nightclubs. And of course, people ingest alcohol, their inhibitions uh, come down. So are we at a point, do you think, doctor, here in Ontario with our numbers uh, where they're at? Is there a cause for concern? And should we see a bit of a rollback, uh, for example, for indoor dining and bars, as you suggest? Well, yes, we should. I'm not expecting that to happen. And so I think rather than expecting the government to take action, I think we just need to continue the conversation to say, this is a really risky behavior. Is it worth it? Is the dinner that good to be worth it? Back when Alberta and BC both started opening bars, this is back in June now, I said at the time, I felt it was going to take about two months for us to see the impact, not two weeks, because this is a healthy group where uh, of population, that, 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 younger, that younger demographic, where a lot of the illness is going to be subclinical. 
it's going to be asymptomatic, it's going to take a while to spread to be detectable. And then once that happens, it's going to, it's going to really tilt upward. And I think just about two months later, we're seeing that in BC. Alberta is a little bit less clear, but I, I'm sure bars and restaurants are, are implicated in there too. And as far as Ontario goes, well, it depends obviously where in the province. Uh, I'm most concerned about Toronto because Toronto is the big city with, with close quarters and, and poverty and all the sorts of other risk factors. Um, I would expect us to start to see an uptick uh, in, uh, let's say, October. Particularly when we add back to school into the mix. I'm not even counting back to school. I'm thinking about just bars and restaurants. I don't think the, I don't think schools are going to be particularly risky as long as community transmission stays low. So if we're able to keep case counts down across the board, I don't think schools are going to add much to that at all. But to keep things to keep things under wraps, under control, I would really want people to stay away from bars and restaurants. All right. Just finally, since we're talking case counts, Canada as a whole, we just surpassed 126,000 cases. Is that number uh, a cause for alarm or, or concern, do you think? Compared to many countries, we are doing astonishingly well. And if you look at us from the perspective of Europe or someplace else where the United States is, is out of control with millions of cases, we are doing spectacularly well. I think we should remember that. We, what we have been doing has been working. I think that's fantastic. The problem, the hubris though, and we've seen this in different countries, comes from declaring it over or saying, hey, we've done a really great job and then relaxing too much. And I suspect this is a mistake that BC made when they decided it was okay to open bars and restaurants. There would have been a lot of pressure to do it because they performed so well. But it's a cautionary tale that you're only as good as your recent numbers and COVID will come back full force if you give it an opportunity to do so. Dr. Colin Furness, Dr. Furness, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for the update. My pleasure. Thanks. And that's our podcast for today. Don't forget you can catch me, Jeff MacArthur, live weekdays from 1 to 3 on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.